This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to the discussion of religion, faith, spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's either me or I'm a figment of your imagination. This may or may not be episode 11 for February 2012. Our topic for this episode is Things I Don't Understand a 2011 film by director David Spaltro. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, now would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Ken, tell me about the things I don't understand. About all the things you don't understand. <laughs> all of the many, many things. Yes. Well, Things I Don't Understand is an indie movie format. It centers around a woman named Violet, who is played by Molly Ryman. She's dealing with depression at the beginning of the film. Uh, she's actually had a failed suicide attempt. She's in therapy, in part because she has a, a master's thesis or a PhD thesis about... Uh, what happens to you when you die, and so she's talked to a number of people who have had near-death experiences, has become somewhat convinced that uh, nothing happens after you die, that you cease to exist, uh, and this has led to sort of depression. Uh, she lives in a flat with a, a gay musician and a performance artist, and what plot there is centers around them possibly getting evicted from their apartment if they can't come up with, I think it's $200,000 to buy the building themselves. Uh, this leads to more depression because there's no possible way that we could ever get that amount of money. Uh, she eventually, through the intercession of a therapist played by Lisa Icorn, comes into contact with a woman named Sarah who has terminal cancer and she begins to violet begins to come out of her shell through dealing with sarah uh, she also forges a somewhat cathartic relationship with the bartender at the local bar who is nursing a silent and impenetrable wound uh, <laughs> uh and so it's a little bit about the you know kind of wounded people despairing people in the modern landscape and how uh, their intercessions with each other may or may not help them get past their depression, but how they definitely help each other get past their soon-to-be-imminent homelessness. <laughs> uh, Before we get into our discussion, I just I want to jump back real quick. You used the phrase indie movie format, and I, I've, that's popped up a few times in our discussions, and I'm curious, how do you... Or what, what makes it an indie movie as opposed to something yeah, else? Yeah, uh, that's a little bit of a lazy designation, isn't it? Certainly, I mean, from a technical standpoint, indie would be independent as opposed to not having studio backing. 
So the IMD page for things that I don't understand shows that uh, this was written and directed, and I believe uh, by the same guy, and that I believe that David Spaltro was also the producer listed as the producer, mm. which means you're raising the money for the film. Uh, I'm pretty sure IMDb had listed as a budget for the film $200,000, so uh, certainly part of the indie is that you have a certain amount of budget. I think because of the budget constraints and the sorts of things that kinds of movies that people are allowed to make a little bit more cheaply, uh, we tend to associate indie movies, or at least I do, with movies about relationships, movies that are very talky, uh, because talk is a little cheap. Cheap, yes. <laughs> uh, no, pun in, no pun intended. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually thinking about earlier this semester, I was discussing Virginia Woolf's Professions for Women, and she has a wonderful line in there that says the reason that uh, women have been so much more active in writing than any other fields in the history of the world is because... Uh, fool's cap, i.e. paper and ink, is so cheap that I can participate in it without having to have a big financial backing. Uh, so generally speaking, indie stories usually I equate sometimes with smaller stories. Uh, does it mean anything different to you or am I... No, I just, I, I found it curious. We kept throwing this term around and, and certainly this is the kind of film where, yeah, it's, I mean, there's not a lot of money spent on costumes, on sets, on really anything and so it it kind of is definitely going to be in our current time setting mm -hmm. um there there aren't a lot of or any you know visual tricks um it's, this is about people and people wrestling with ideas in their life and and i think but i think there is a certain ethos there um it in terms of it, it's not slick it's not polished and I'm, I'm, and I'm with this film specifically. As we get into some of the things we're talking about, I'm wondering if that doesn't guide some of the, or shape some of the film. Yeah, I wonder too if it's a chicken and egg thing. Right, and I guess I, yeah, and that might get at what now I'm thinking might be the root of my question: is is indie film a genre, or is it a, you know, designation based on budget and thing, you know. And again, that might be a chicken or egg question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's more of a designation. Just I, I started to say genre because then I was going to say, well, okay, as a result of the limitations of budget and production values, you may not get certain genres that are... And, and the first one that jumped into my head is like science fiction. Right. But then I just mentioned another Earth. Or I think about say, Andrew Tarkovsky's, Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker, mm -hmm. you know, which is a bunch of guys walking around, you know, walking around. It's got a science fiction premise, but then it still has a very indie feel in the sense of it's not about special effects or big budget things. Uh, so I think certainly you can have a romance. You can have just about any genre within an independent feel, uh, but I think it's more about Kind a subset of every genre rather than a genre into itself. Interesting. So the the big question of the film, as stated by the film, is this idea of what happens to us after death. Yes, that's our main character's thesis, her research, um, what seems to trigger her. Well, I guess the question is, what is the relationship 
between her depression that she's working out through the film and her her topic? Well, I would say it's the source of her depression. Uh, I guess uh, we had mentioned just before in production notes, sharing some overviews about our general takes on the film. And, and I, I want to be careful how I say this because I'm, I got some feedback about our podcast on Lahav in, in which someone... A friend of mine said he was amused that after, quote, trashing the film for 38 minutes, we both said, oh, I'm enchanted by it. Uh, so it, it made me think that I need to be a little bit more upfront <laughs> about my general feelings about the film before I get into specifics. I, I had said to you that I didn't dislike the film. I was, I was a little neutral towards it. There were some things that made me hard to embrace it. But I was actually surprised when I got to the end that I didn't that I didn't dislike it because I I did not dislike it. Uh, it had some features that sometimes are typical of films that I don't always that don't always resonate to me or that I find a little tedious. But I, I actually kind of got somewhat engrossed in the story. I would say certainly to me the relationship between her thesis and her depression is is postulated and it's very clear that she sort of gives this illusion that her suicide or her attempted suicide is a matter of intellectual curiosity because I couldn't find the information I was looking for by interviewing people who've had near-death experiences. I'll have my own to see if there's a light or a tunnel or there's anything there. But there's also certainly seems to be the tone of, yeah, that's a kind of brave front that she puts on it, that, that in fact... Uh, what seems to be driving a lot of the depression is the conviction that there is nothing after death, that having done this research mm -hmm. and talked to all these people and saying, I don't really believe that there's a light, that I'm dealt with this sort of existential angst about, you know, what happens to us when we die, and it's just intolerable to live with that burden, and I would rather not. Um, I think it's very significant from my point of view that both in the voiceover at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, she says not that one day all of us are going to die, which is one thing, or one day all of us are going to be dead, which is still another thing, but one day all of us are going to cease to exist. And that's right. a third thing, and you know, entirely. That's a different kind of spiritual, existential uh, crisis, which I think the film postulates but never really proves or moves off of. I was a little surprised that uh, by the end, she gets to the place where I can live with that. Mm -hmm. But she never really quite gets to the point where she says, let me challenge that. Is that really true? Yes, it's true that we will all be dead, but is it true that we will all no longer exist? Mm -hmm. You know, Are those synonyms for the same thing? The film seems to treat them like they are. From my point of view as a Christian, they're not. And I don't think that Christianity is the only worldview that thinks of those you know, different that things. That would necessarily think ceasing to exist and being dead are, are two different things. Well, certainly, yeah, Christianity is not the only religion that posits an afterlife. Right. So, you know, there is definitely that larger... Which, which is only important for me to say in the sense of, you know, I want to be self-conscious about, like, my objection or challenge on that particular plot point is not just a roundabout or backhanded way of saying, well, this isn't Christian, right? you know? Well, and I think even, you know, for a film that seems to be 
putting itself out there as saying we are dealing with this big issue. Mm -hmm. It does seem strange that that one conclusion doesn't really get challenged. Mm -hmm. um, In fact, not only does it not get challenged, it gets reinforced throughout the film. You were talking in the pre-production notes, and it's worth bringing up, about some reservations that you had about Violet's interaction with... Uh, Sarah, the cancer yeah. patient. So, yeah, in the story, Sarah um, is in a hospice care, and they for Violet and Sarah forge this fast relationship and make a deal. Um, kind of, it, it's it's the Houdini deal, where uh, when I die, I will do everything I can to try to communicate with you from the other side. And then at various points through the rest of the story... Sarah reappears. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that she's only reappearing to Violet, and they're having conversations. But what, what graded on me was that every single visitation was accompanied by, at some point, Sarah saying, you know I'm not really real. I'm just a figment of your imagination or something along those lines. And I, and I thought that was very, I don't know, heavy-handed in kind of just constantly saying, no, this isn't real. Sarah's not really there. She's not coming back from the other side. It's just, you know, you're hallucinating or something. Yeah, it seemed to me to be a bit of a cheat in the sense that, well, the comparison that I made was with Hamlet, that I wanted it to be right. a little bit more ambiguous because the problem with the Houdini bargain it's, of course, what will you accept as evidence? No amount of evidence. It's always going to be ambiguous because exactly. there's some way of explaining away uh, the evidence. But rather than leaving it ambiguous and really probing the question of, well, what would I accept as evidence? They have Grace. I mean, I'm sorry. They have Sarah. Grace is the name of the actress. Grace Folsom. They, they have Sarah undercut it, uh, which, you know, the ghost, if the ghosts were real... The ghost would have no reason of saying, I'm not real. Yeah, the ghost would be saying, hello, here I yeah. am. So, you know, it would be much more effective and ambiguous to me if if the ghost was saying, I'm real, remember our bargain, I'm coming back, yes, there really right. is an afterlife. And Violet is saying, how could I know? You, you know, maybe you're just a figment of my imagination. I, right. I, I mentioned Hamlet, right, in Hamlet. It's not the ghost who says, well, maybe I'm just a figment of your imagination or maybe I'm a demon in disguise or something like that. It's the ghost that's like saying, no, I'm your father. And, and Hamlet is saying, I want to believe that, but can I, you know, How can I, I, know? I, I really believe that. And, and so by putting that, that sort of, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm just a figment of your imagination in Sarah's mouth rather than Violet's, that seems to tip the hand in one direction of, of saying, no, it's not. No, it's, and as you say, it reinforces this notion that, there is nothing afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and you use the, the term front that, um, you know, that, that, that Violet has this front. And it got me thinking that there, it's like almost every character in the film has a front. Yeah. Um, Sarah um, has this, when we first meet Sarah, she is very brash, courageous. She is facing her death with a plum. Um, you know, everyone's going to die. I just have to die sooner. And she seems okay until there, there does come a moment when, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that she's getting to the end where she breaks down. Mm -hmm. uh, her front is removed. Um, the, the gay roommate 
um, is putting himself out there as this you know avant-garde artist until we find out that he's a trust fund baby who's got you know daddy's got millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. yeah everyone's got that he's playing at being bohemian right you know he, if he wanted to he could just go home at any moment mm-hmm. and you know do that um the yeah, bartender is not who he appears to be he's, and he's got to give huge swellers from the and, and I think it's, it, it is interesting in that it's it's a movie about people hiding behind these masks um, throughout the whole thing. Um, and I wonder if that doesn't get at even the film itself, you know, is purporting to wrestle with these ideas when really it has an answer that it just sticks to. Well, that's, that's a fascinating comment to me. And... I'm not sure if we're giving the film more credit than it deserves, or if you're not giving the film more credit than it deserves. But I'm not sure. But I, I'm not sure either way. Maybe that that's because that's a way of thinking about it that I hadn't. And particularly the connection I'll make is when I think about the title, mm-hmm. things I don't understand. Right. Uh, you and I both teach on the college level, and we've commented many times. I've I've commented several times about how claiming to not understand can often be a front mm-hmm. in, well, particularly with students, right? Which is to sort of say that can be the attempt of a student to push the responsibility back onto you. You know, if the student yes. says, I didn't do the work, well, then I just fail. If the student says, uh, I disagree or I do whatever, then they're somehow not responsible. But there's something about either the generation or the time period or, or something like that. Where if the student says, I don't understand, then it's your job to explain it to me until I do. And I can't be held accountable mm-hmm. for what I don't under, you know, what I don't understand. And that will often lead to what I will call a, a kind of intellectual or a spiritual front, which is to say, uh, a lot of times people, when they say, I don't understand this, what they really mean is, I understand it perfectly, I just don't like it, right? right. It's like G.K. Chesterton thing about, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been it's been found hard and not tried. Well, you know, how much of it is it within these people? Like, I, I'm wondering now, when you say that, whether the title might not be somewhat tongue-in-cheek or might not even be sarcastic about, mm. you know, uh, hey, I as a filmmaker am making a comment about this generation of people spiritually, which they say, I don't understand these things. And I'm like, do you really not understand them mm-hmm. or do you just not like them and it's much more comfortable uh, to walk around and create a narrative for yourself about poor me, I'm lost in this impenetrable postmodern world of things that I don't understand when when really what it means is I, I lack the courage to actually act on anything. So as long as I, I keep myself in a state of suspended animation, then I'm not responsible for the choices that I make. And that that kind of would exp- I mean, the character of Violet, our you know, our main character, one of the things I struggled with in the film is that I had a hard time really caring one way or another what happened to this character. It, it, I did not engage at all with the main character. And part of it was she has this sort of world-weary, I've heard it all before. Um, you see this especially when she's going to the therapist. Mm-hmm. And 
she just, it's that sort of scene where she says, oh, well, I know exactly what you're going to say. I know exactly what you are going to tell me to do. Blah, blah, here. I'm going to lay it all out for you. I've been through therapy. My parents study therapy. What can you possibly do that I don't already know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's like, okay, well, if you're so smart and know all of these things, then it's... What are you going to the therapist for? Um, now, granted, in the film, the therapist does says, "Well, I agree with you," and it, rather than sends talk, her off, sends to, her off to go friendship with, you know. And in a sense, the therapist kind of shows, "Well, I do know something more than you. I know that you need people, uh, right?" But I don't know. I wonder if that isn't, you know, maybe there's more there than we think. Yeah, great. I mean, Violet is. I didn't dislike Violet as much because I, I I definitely have that sort of reaction to a lot of um, disaffected mm-hmm. young characters in movies. We, I mean, a couple podcasts ago, we talked about Mumblecore and how I'm just so not down with that. Or right. you know, if you think about a movie like uh, Greenberg, you know, where I'm just kind of like, oh, I just find these people so tedious. Well, what a br-, you know. Uh, where, where generally my response is somewhat like, like, oh, wow, well, if life is such a burden on you, uh, you know, I wish you would just go off and kill yourself <laughs> so that you're not depressing the rest of us by, uh, you know, fluctuating between how miserable I am and how aggressively I am putting the responsibility on you to make me not miserable, mm-hmm. you know, or to tell me how... Uh, not miserable that I am. I, I mean, I do think that from an emotional track on the story, Violet has a little bit of growth. That is to say, she she comes to realize that uh, the the key to at least finding a tentative satisfaction with her life has to do with engagement. Engagement mm-hmm. is a good thing. Uh, by beginning to care marginally about other people, forging this relationship with the bartender and right. saying, hey, maybe he's got some problems of his own uh, forging this relationship with Sarah and sort of saying, hey, there are some people that are worse off. And so I think she grows somewhat mm-hmm. emotionally and that gives me a little bit of bud for not just being like so frustrated at her for being not because she doesn't end up being one of those characters that really drive me nuts who are just dogmatically unhappy. Right. You know, who who make it sort of like a contest. Who who like, I don't want to be happy. Exactly. You know, the problem is it is not that, that I'm unhappy and I want you to fix it. It's that I cherish my unhappiness. That's my distinctive and I won't be fooled. And so therefore, you know, I'm just like, no, there's nothing you can do to, to, to make me that way. And I'm like, well, why should I even try then? And I think there's a willingness mm-hmm. on an emotional level for Violet to not be unhappy. Right. Which makes her less tedious to me. Although I'm I'm not ultimately sure that I buy the reasons why she's less unhappy on a spiritual level by the end. I, th- I think she's grown emotionally a little bit. She's a little had bit. marginal improvement. But then that sort of raises to me the central conundrum about the film, which is, is the source of her depression ultimately emotional or spiritual? Because the film starts with, the reason I'm depressed is not because I'm not engaged with people. It's because I have this spiritual question that is tormenting me. And I can't get And an by answer. the end, she doesn't really answer that question. She just sort of says, well... I can now live with the torment of the, un- it's not even uncertainty for her, of right. the 
of the horrific answer that I, you know, I don't want to believe, but because I now have a boyfriend or I've had this relationship or I'm engaged with other people, somehow or another, I can live with that knowledge that I'm going to cease to exist that I found so tormenting at the beginning. Uh, and maybe I'm projecting too much of myself on that, but I, I'm just kind of like, if that deep down is the cause of your depression, like someday I'm going to cease to exist, then well, I'm back to my comparison to Hamlet, right? That engagement with other people, having a girlfriend, like it doesn't make it better. It just makes it worse because you're, you're cognizant of the fact of, this is all going away. This is all going away. Yeah. <laughs> does that make any sense? It, it does. I mean, I was... The thing about the ending of the film that just sort of bothered me, and well, and it, it, for me, it, just, it fit into this pattern of a kind of film that I'm tired of, is that, okay, in the end of the film, you know, you, you mentioned that the plot, what there was of plot, kind of centered around this fact that the they're all going to be evicted from their living right. quarters. They live above this bar and the building's being sold. And so, and by the end of it, a magical rich uncle, the bartender, you know, we realize, oh, he's got millions of dollars and he just is going to buy the building for us and give mm -hmm. it to us. Oh, aren't we all happy? It's like, well, their, their material, physical problems are solved. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that's happy. Um, but yeah, emotionally and spiritually, emotionally there has been some growth. I don't know that there's been any, I mean, happiness. Mm -hmm. And certainly spiritually, as you point out, there doesn't seem to be any movement. Mm -hmm. So, oh, but we're all going to be happy now because we aren't going to be evicted. Yeah, it's a and, weird, you know, it's a weird sort of paradox because on the one hand, the film starts with you know, a big cosmic question and that sort of, yeah, the knock on this generation of young people is supposed to be, well, that's very super, you know, right. that they're very superficial, that all they care about is the Seinfeldian or the friends, nice places to live or do what sorts of things. And at least at the beginning of the film, it's like they're unhappy, but at least there's a part of me that's like, well, at least they're unhappy about things that are worth being unhappy about, right. you know. And then there's something about the resolution of the film that, that grates on me a little bit, not in the sense of I've seen it often before, but on the sense of, of where, like, okay, the bigger unhappiness isn't going to – the bigger things aren't going to be solved, but at least there's this minor resolution on the smaller thing. And that – paradoxically makes them back to seeming more superficial, which is to say, well, I'm really unhappy about the fact that, you know, I'm going to cease to exist or the state of the world or why there's cancer in the world, but I get to stay in my apartment so everything's okay, you know, yeah. and that just makes it seem like, okay, were you really, really unhappy about metaphysical spiritual problems or were you just unhappy about there's some problem you know there's some minor discomfort in well, and it's not it, just that they're gonna oh we get to stay where we live it's like what was going to be the downside if they got evicted it's like oh i have to go live with my rich parents yeah I'm a, I, I, <laughs> well you know but the, a part of me is saying some of that may be a, a back to mumble course some of that may be a generational thing mm -hmm. which is to say i mean it's typical of youth of any age right right to be able to you know not have difficulty distinguishing between big problems and little problems because when they're mine they all they're you know, all big they all feel like big problems and there might be for the apartment 
you know, there might be a glimmer of letting them off the hook in that sort of, there is a straw that broke the, broke the camel's back kind of motif in a lot of literature where the little thing can become such an important thing because of its timing and when it occurred. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the TV show Sports Night where like Dana has a series of catastrophes or personal crises or something like that. And at one point she says, I need something good to happen right now. And something good does happen. Right. And it, it's not just that, 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 uh, or we've been watching Downtown Abbey and there right. was just a scene in which uh, a, the personal family crisis happens to the Lord of the Manor and he has an interaction with the servant. He says, well, the good news is you get to keep your job and God knows I could use some good news you yeah. know, right now. So, I mean, I do think there is this motif of sort of saying when you go through traumatic things, you, you know, little things, whether they're little blessings or little indignities, get blown up all out of proportion. I would have liked some awareness mm-hmm. from the characters part or the film's part that say this apartment, part of why this apartment thing feels so important to me is not because it is intrinsically important, that important, right. but because I am dealing with the all sorts of other questions that magnify anything that I have. And maybe that's where, well, you know, the Downton Abbey example where the writing in that it makes it more effective is that it is very clearly that, you know, this one character not having to be fired in the scope of everything else, it is a smaller thing. Mm-hmm. And it's everybody. At least from the person who says it. Right. You know? From the person who says it. And, and it, but there's this awareness all the way through that that's, you know, in the ranking of the things of importance where mm-hmm. it falls. Um, I think here in things I don't understand, the importance of that, you know, apartment, it's never. We, we don't get any sense that the characters really understand how important things are or what, what are these bigger things or how it ranks or... Yeah. So, and... But, I mean, kind of to try to draw this, you know, to a, a little bow on this, I, I'm back to what I wanted to say in terms of... I, I feel like we've been really focusing on the things that, that were less successful, um, and yet... There was something about it that engaged me where I was like, I walked away and I was like, okay, I see this intellectually and I see that. Um, but, but I didn't hate the film, you know, and I mm-hmm. mean, you're, you're talking about the writing. Yeah, there's a part of me that intellectually says, yeah, it's not Downtown Abbey writing. Right. You know, it's not Sports Night writing, which is Aaron Sorkin. But then, you know, again, we're back to the there's indie. a lot of room between <laughs> Aaron Sorkin and the typical indie film that annoys me, which is so many of the... I, I think there is an intelligence in the writing or at least a, a willingness to say, I don't have to explain every little thing to you because I will trust you to be able right. to understand some things about these characters from the particular scenes. And so in some ways, yeah, I don't necessarily like the characters, but I'm not sure that they're supposed to be likable or all the time likable. I did appreciate about the film that for a film about death and life after death and friends dying of cancer and, you know, these huge questions, There, it was understated mm-hmm. uh, a little bit and there was some... Uh, restraint in 
in the writing a little bit like soul surfer too where i would say part of it may just have been that there were certain mistakes that i was expecting right given the genre that i was like okay it didn't do that it didn't do Mm -hmm. that it didn't do that so i i mean i would probably be just you know a a kind of marginal thumbs up i i I recognize some of the flaws sort of my acid test is if this person had another movie coming out would I, will I go to the next one? Right. <laughs> you know, would I go to the next one? I said, I think some of the ideas weren't fully formed or didn't necessarily satisfy me. But I liked the questions that it was asking. And I would be like, yeah, I, I would I would certainly be interested in, in what this writer has to say next. And and certainly I'm, I, I'm not sure that I liked Violet. But I, I enjoyed the the actors. I thought Molly was uh, Molly Ryman was was fine, and I would certainly if I saw her then in another movie, I'd be like, yeah, I'd, I'd be so. Yeah, for me, it was more of a you know, marginal thumbs up, mm-hmm. tentative. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Molly Ryman. I whenever Grace Folsom was on the screen, Sarah, mm-hmm. I was engaged. Yeah, and her character, she, it's like the whole screen lit up, and I was like, oh. And that's hard to do, yeah. like, wow, and then how many times? Yeah. I I am dying of cancer, well, you know, after 15 seasons of ER. Is right. That... And, and so that was, um, yeah, that was a bright spot. Um, and I, I, I've been holding back the whole time, but how can we not talk about dancing vaginas? <laughs> I mean, well, I, you, now you can't just throw that out there in the last two minutes of the podcast. So, I, I, I guess now we can't not talk about dancing vaginas. Uh, what would you like to say about dancing vaginas? Well, I, I think there's something endearing about a movie that talks about the crazy performance artist roommate. Yes, and. I think many films would just leave it there and say, oh, she's the crazy performance artist roommate. But instead, we have a film that shows us. Yeah. We, we get Green Wrath, the yes. feminist, womanist, environmental, we're peaceful, but we're going to do things, you know, all means necessary to save the earth and put on this bizarre, <laughs> wonderfully bizarre... <laughs> Uh, play with dancing vaginas. Yes. And, you know, it's... Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with Tell versus Show, that one of my pet peeves in any movie, and maybe this goes back to the writing, is movies that tell you a character is something, but then you don't ever see it. You, you know, like, right. uh, just think about, like, Finding Forrester, where you, you get, like, an hour and a half of telling you what a great writer... Uh, this kid is and then when it comes time to actually hear something that they wrote it goes to music in a voiceover or i forget what was the movie where elizabeth she was uh uh supposed to be a nuclear scientist like chain reaction or something like that you know where it's like okay this is supposed to be a brilliant scientist and i'm like you never see it um and so yeah there is something that's quite endearing about like okay this is a trope this is a stereotype i have the crazy performance artist roommate but you know you get five minutes of oh okay <laughs> it's you, crazy you, yeah <laughs> yeah that, that she is in fact crazy and there's something that's a little bit more memorable or personal about that and and i think yeah you're right to connect that with uh, Sarah as well that yeah. that it's like 
okay, well, that's a generic character type, the you know, person who's dying of cancer, and yet she finds a core of, uh, the film finds a core, whether it's the actress or the writing, finds a core of an actual real person right. that, that's... And for me, maybe my point of engagement with the film was the side characters. Yeah, you know, I, I I thought the film was doing a nice job with some of the side characters, and I could you know buy into them even if I couldn't really connect to the main person. So. Yeah, yeah. So okay, well, so it sounds like maybe marginal thumbs up for me. You're yeah, but take it or leave it. Yeah, take it or leave it. <laughs> That's good. Well. Thank you for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode and the many things that we do not understand, uh, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment. Or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield or at his blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!